I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Most of you probably know that line and the, probably the rest of the song as well. It's Louis Armstrong's song, What a Wonderful World. And I love that song and I'm grateful for it because Louis looks out and he sees a world that is full of goodness and beauty and things that attract us and not just the problems of this world. But there's a danger in looking at those things and that is that they can begin to cause us to want to own it and to keep it, to hold on to this life and have an attachment to it that cannot make it across the threshold of death. So let me share another quote with you. This is from Tim Keller, one of my mentors via his books. Uh, He's the pastor in New York City who planted Redeemer Church. Back in June, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And three weeks after finding that out, he put this tweet out there with a prayer request. And he had four requests in it. And he said, if you'd like to pray for me, here are four things you can pray for. The second request was this. And notice the maturity of this. He says, for Kathy and me, that we would use this opportunity to be weaned from the joys of this world and to, to desire God's presence above all. Keller saw his cancer as an opportunity to refocus on God and to be weaned off of the joys of this world. It doesn't diminish that this world has joys and that we can enjoy them. It just reminds us that we can't hold on to them. We can't keep them. We get to enjoy them, but we have to hold on loosely, as we might say. There's a temptation, what my friend Alan calls building a thiefdom, like little thieves, robbers, that we would steal stuff that's not ours and build our own little kingdom, a thiefdom, instead of being part of God's much bigger kingdom. And in our little thiefdom, of course, we feel like we own stuff, but we don't. We forget that we are servants, even slaves. We are not owners of anything. And I'm grateful for this. You know why? Because God has so much more for us in serving him. He invites us to participate in his business as a friend, not just as a servant. So the question I opened with that BE asked is, do I know God well enough to know what he wants in the various circumstances and situations of my life? You know, the Bible doesn't tell you the specifics of your life of what college to go to, who to marry, which car to buy, what job to take, where to live, all these questions, who to serve, where to serve, which ministry to be in. What does it look like for God's kingdom to come in that particular circumstance? The Bible doesn't give us that. What it gives us is a picture of who God himself is and what a relationship with him looks like. And then we're expected to extrapolate from that into each circumstance and be kingdom people wherever he might have us. Do I know God well enough to know what he wants in those kind of circumstances? Now, Matthew 25 is towards the end of Jesus's ministry, his his, uh, earthly ministry before the cross. Matthew's gospel is broken down into five major discourses with a little phrase at the end of each that tells us we've come to the end of this teaching block. And when he had finished these sayings, he so-and-so did whatever comes next. And so the first block is the Sermon on the Mount. And we looked at that earlier this year. This is the fifth of these blocks of teaching, and it's known to scholars as the Olivet Discourse because he gave it on the Mount of Olives. 
So he has come to the temple. He knows he's come to die. And he's looked at the temple and lamented over it, that it was not aware of his presence and who he was that was in its midst. It was out of season and unfruitful. And he begins to give his disciples a teaching of things to come. And he sits on the Mount of Olives, his disciples come to him, and he gives this teaching about last things. Matthew 25 is right in the middle of that. And last week I told you that God warns us because he loves us. He warns us because he loves us. And last week we looked at the parable of the 10 uh, bridesmaids, and now the next paragraph in Matthew 25 is this parable of the talents. The parable of the talents. It's a warning for sure. And it's stark in its language. But I actually think it's an invitation. I see far more of an invitation here in this parable than I see warning. Now, a talent is actually a large sum of money. Um, the ESV footnote says, a talent is a monetary unit worth about 20 years wages for a laborer. So, you know, take minimum wage times 40 hours a week and 52 weeks a year, and you're going to get somewhere around $30,000 or whatever. A talent was that times 15 or 20. So this is a large amount of money that is given to these people. And in verse 15, it says, to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. But it doesn't say what that ability to do what. I have lots of abilities. I can buy something on Amazon in 30 seconds or less. I don't think that's the best use of two talents of God's stuff, maybe. But so ability to do what? Well, we'll come back to that ability thing in a little bit. But the next line says that he who had received the five talents went at once and he traded with them. So he used them in an investment kind of way. He used them in a way that they would multiply and grow. And he grew them. So we're using a metaphor here of business. It's money and it's a business transaction. The parable of the talents sets up two different kinds of responses. So the first two people take the money, they trade with it, and they double it. Five goes to ten, two goes to four, but then there's a third guy, and the parable hinges on this guy. He takes the money and he buries it in the ground, which in the absence of a FDIC-backed kind of banking system, that was probably the safest place to hide a real treasure. You dig a hole in your yard when no one's looking, you bury it, and make sure you remember where you dug it. And, that's, and, it, and it just stays down there. It does no work. It's just hidden. It's somewhat safe, but it's hidden. And there are two responses to the two types here. The guy with five and the guy with two both hear the exact same thing in verse 21 and verse 23. When he comes back, they report and say, look, master, you gave me five. It's now grown to 10. I doubled your investment, 100% growth. And the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Exact same response for the guy who had two and doubled them to four. So it doesn't seem that it matters how much you start with. It matters what you do with it. And they both get the same commendation at the end. Then there's a third response, which is not good at all. He came forward and he said, here's your stuff. And I knew you to be a hard man. You reap what you don't sow. You basically, I, you're not trustworthy. I can't trust you. I'm afraid of you. Here's your stuff back. Take it and go. I want no part in your business. 
in other words. Well, the response is harsh, but appropriate. You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? In other words, I'm going to judge you by your own words. If you think that's what I'm like, then you should have found a banker that would at least give you some interest on it so that when I returned, I did get something back. But you didn't. Take his talent away from him, give it to the guy who's got 10, and then cast him out. And then he says, cast that worthless servant into the outer darkness, verse 30. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the place of absence from God. You want no part in my business? Fine. Your will be done. That's out there. It's dark. There's no light. There's weeping. There's anguish. There's gnashing of teeth. There are no trees of green and red roses in bloom. None of that's out there. It is whatever is left if you take God out of the equation. And we forget how much his common grace is present in this world. And if you really want no part in God, that means God's stuff as well. And what's left is a person who's tried to build a thiefdom and realizes they couldn't even hold on to that, and all they're left with is their want. There's anguish, there's suffering. It's a terrible place. And God doesn't want anyone to end up there. In fact, that's in 2 Peter. He's patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to salvation. He's constantly wooing. He's saying, come be part of what I'm doing. Enter into the master's joy. Come with me. Now, as I've read this parable over the years, I've always wanted a third kind of option. I wanted the guy who got, you know, two talents and went away and traded and then lost money and came back and said, you gave me two, Lord. Here's 1.75. It's been a rough trading season. I, I didn't make some good investments. But you know what? I don't think that's even an option because I look at the 11 disciples and I see guys who were way more like that and I see God's grace in their life and it was in their weakness that his strength was made perfect. Those 11 fearful guys that didn't get it and didn't get it and didn't get it were then full of the Holy Spirit and today a third of the planet claims to be a Christian. They went from 11 to 2 billion. That's way more than 100% return on investment, right? Those guys had God's grace at work in their life and God multiplied and multiplied and multiplied it. They were interested in doing the kingdom work he invited them to. God was working through them. Now, the man here, the bad man, the third man, totally misunderstands the master's nature. Listen to his words. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed, so I was afraid. For those of you that have been worshiping God for a while, for those of you that have read the Bible, for those of you that know the story, does that sound anything like God? No, not at all. It's not even close. The scripture over and over and over again says, I am slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It shows a God who loves people, who saves them out of their sin and out of their slavery, and he brings them into a relationship with him, and he is so kind and so loving. He warns because he loves us, and he knows there's a consequence of rejecting him, but he's constantly trying to win us to come in. You know, in Genesis 3, Satan deceived Adam and Eve by sowing seeds of doubt about God's goodness. Oh, he doesn't want you to eat of that tree because then you'll be like him. Don't do that. Then you'll know good from evil and God doesn't want you competing with him. And, you know, 
you, you'll be wise in your own eyes, and you'll be able to be like God, and God doesn't want that. Actually, God does. That's why he made them in his image, to be his image bearers, to be like him. We're not going to supersede God, and that's the lie, is that he's not good, he can't be trusted, and to be in his kingdom is not where you want to be. Build your own thiefdom, because God's kingdom as a servant in his kingdom is not better. That's the lie. But you know what? When you look at the cross, when you look at the gospel, you see an incredible reversal. You know, we are nothing but slaves. But God changes the equation by sending his son to become a servant and die so that we who are slaves and servants can become sons and daughters. And he invites us in, not just to be his servants, but to be his friends, to participate in his business as his friends. You know, the Olivet Discourse happened about two or three days before the cross. And literally two days later was Passover, and Jesus would be in the upper room breaking bread with them, instituting the Last Supper, talking about the cross, talking about being a servant, washing their feet, all that stuff. And then he says, I no longer call you servants in John 15. I call you friends. Because a servant doesn't know the master's business. But I've told you everything I've heard from my father. So, He has made us friends. He's invited us to participate in his kingdom work, not as slaves anymore, but as sons and daughters adopted in. He's given us access to the Father and a relationship so we can know what this whole thing is about. The great reversal. The cross ransomed us out of slavery and into sonship. We've been adopted as sons and daughters so we can begin a real relationship with him and know his will. So, as we started this worship with a call to worship, in Anglican liturgy, we we say the same things over and over each week because we need to be reminded. The Eucharistic prayer, listen to it today. When we break bread, listen to what it says about who God is and what he's done for us and who that then makes us. We need to remember these things so we're not tempted to believe the lie and go off and try and create our own little thiefdom that we can't hang on to and that just ends in darkness, weeping, and gnashing of teeth and frustration. The other thing that's on offer is to enter into the master's joy. And back in verse 15, I talked about abilities, right? Um, To each, according to his ability, they're given these talents. Well, you know, the interesting thing is that you can grow in your abilities to be a business um, friend of God. So the man who was given five was then grew it and doubled it to 10 and then was given an 11th one. And when the praise came back, he says, you have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. So we grow in our ability to serve God's kingdom, to hear his voice, to see what it would look like for his kingdom to break into this particular situation in your workplace, in your neighborhood, with your friends, whatever it is, in your family, wherever he sends you. You can grow in your ability to multiply kingdom stuff. And I wonder, I think, Like that quote from the tweet from Tim Keller, what might God be weaning out of your life at this moment that you have an unhealthy attachment to something in this world? You're not holding on loosely anymore. You've clutched it. You're trying to keep something that you can't keep. And therefore, God can't add things to your hand as well as take them out. When your hands are open like this, he can put stuff in, he can take stuff out. But when you're like this, that doesn't happen. I wonder, what might he be weaning from your life. You're not an owner. You're a servant turned son or daughter. What might you be trying to possess? 
Now, the parable here directly talks about money. And at this time of year, we have pledge cards. We encourage you to think about actual money. What are, you doing, what are you doing with the money that you have entrusted to you? It's not your money. It's God's money that he's entrusted to you. What are you doing with that? It's important to take inventory of that. But, you know, when I looked at this, I thought, ah, oh, it's so unfortunate that the word talent is what we use for all kinds of abilities. You know, America's got talent, that kind of talent, as opposed to large amounts of money. But, you know, I looked up the word. You know where talent came from? It came from Matthew 25. That's the modern English word comes from Matthew 25 because the Christians that read it in bygone generations realized God didn't just give us money. He gave us abilities, your physical body, your mind, your, able, your abilities to do all sorts of stuff. All of it comes from him. And we recognize this as gifts from God that can be used for his kingdom, that can please the master, that he can multiply, and then we enter into his joy. What do you have that did not come from God ultimately? There is no self-made man. God is at the source of all of it if you chase it back far enough. So I want to encourage you to act as a business manager for God. I want to encourage you to seek to know him so that you could guess what God wants to have done in your situation, so that you know how to pray in my name. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do that. It doesn't mean you tag on in the name of Jesus at the end of your prayers. It means you pray in accordance with his will. And so as you get to know God, you start to know what his will is, and then you start to pray for those things, and then they happen because God wants them to happen. That is true joy. Unlike weeping and gnashing of teeth, enter into the master's joy. He wants to share that blessing with us to be part of it. God invites us to participate in his business as friends, not just as slaves or servants, as friends. That's who he is. And so Jesus is giving us this teaching right before he goes to the cross, because he wants his disciples to start to understand how the kingdom works. This is a grand invitation for you and me, and I hope you'll reflect on it. I hope you'll ask God to grow your ability. I hope you'll find something that you can step into this very week to start to implement what this parable teaches. And God's grace will be there, for his strength is made perfect in our weakness. Just the effort, just the desire to be with him in this is joy in itself, with greater joys coming. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Lord, I really like your teaching. It shocks me to see the results of the man who doesn't want you. Lord, give us a strong desire to want you. Thank you for inviting us to be not just servants, but friends. Thank you for adopting us as sons and daughters and co-heirs with Christ. Give us courage, Lord, to let go of things that we think secure us in this world. Help us to invest in your kingdom. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. I want to invite you to stand and join in our sermon response song. <clears throat>